0: And a very good evening to you and welcome to People of Note on this Sunday evening. This is a program in which we talk to someone who is a person of note and listen to music of their choice and tonight's guest is Nicola Klein, who is the Dean of Gibbs, the Gordon Institute of Business Science. Is that right?
1: That's right, Richard. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: And welcome. Uh, first of all, perhaps you could just explain to us the Gordon Institute of Business Science, named for Donny Gordon, is it?
1: That's right. It was originally going to be the Graduate Institute of Business Science. It opened its doors in 2000 and then the bequest came through from Donald Gordon, so it was very convenient. We had a G and it became the Gordon Institute of Business Science and it's a fully-fledged faculty of the University of Pretoria. It's their business school, so our focus is predominantly on postgraduate, education and then post-experience education, not all degrees.
0: So you're actually Professor Nicola Klein?
1: I am and unusually a dean. Uh, Normally uh, in the South African context we find that uh, directors uh, head up business schools and they normally form part of a faculty but because Gibbs is seen as quite standalone, we were chatting before we started about the fact that it's in Johannesburg where everybody or the other Pretoria campuses are in Pretoria, it actually has the rights um, and privileges associated with being a full faculty.
0: And can you tell us why it's in Joburg rather than Pretoria?
1: Because that's where the business is. There's, <laughs> a, there's a, a story about the founding dean, Nick Benadel who, who started the school, conceptualized it, and uh, part of his negotiations with the University of Pretoria was, well, if you want a business school, the business school should be where the pinnacle of business in Africa is, and that's in Johannesburg, not in Pretoria.
0: And maybe that's going to lead us on to another conversation quickly now, because it seems that A lot of business is now happening in Nigeria. Do you get students from other parts of Africa at the Gibbs?
1: We do. Uh, So our business uh, in the business school works with working with customized companies and of course uh, customized programs as companies have expanded their activities into the continent. So we've ended up working obviously in their target uh, markets. But I think as the school has become better known, as we've become ranked by the Financial Times, there's been more appetite coming from countries outside uh, of South Africa in the continent. I hate the term rest of Africa. It's, it, you know, it sounds yeah. terribly egocentric. Yeah. Uh, and so what we have seen is obviously more students coming from these areas. But the recent spate of xenophobia uh, and difficulties, of course, with visas has, has made life difficult. It's always fascinating for me that if you look at trade, uh, we trade far more with the rest of the world than trade in the continent. So trade of, of total African trade, only 15 percent is within the continent. We have a lot of work to do in breaking down boundaries.
0: Is that an historical thing?
1: That's a current That's a current yes, but
0: factor. But did it have its origins historically?
1: S- yes, for multiple reasons. I mean, one of them is, of course, linked to South Africa and apartheid and being separate uh, from other countries in the continent. And then we just don't have the infrastructure and the policies. The East Africans are the furthest ahead in terms of uh, uh, interregional trade. Um, but, uh, yes, it is historical. It's, it's, it's sad, and we have a lot of work to do in that area.
0: Well, we're gonna talk about all of this during this program. Let's listen to your first choice of music which is by George Gershwin and it's the famous Summertime. The Beautiful Summertime by George Gershwin. That was the Gauteng Choristers and the JMI Orchestra under Sidwell Mllongo. The choice of Nicola Klein, who's my guest in People of Note tonight. Nicola, just give us a little rundown of how you came to be Dean of Gibbs what what's the story behind it
1: I should first say that I have met very few individuals who have purposely set out in the early stages of their career to be Deans you generally join academia uh, because you're a cat and you're not a dog and uh, perhaps you go into other other disciplines certainly in commerce and I just adored being an academic because of the privilege to work on what you want to work on uh, it's a it's a, r- a remarkable field to be in and i uh, i was in corporate i was I'd worked in retail i had worked at investec bank i taught a little bit at Vitz. and then when uh, nick started gibbs he said to me why don't you come across and do some teaching and that was in the early 2000s i never in my wildest dreams imagined i was going to be a dean one day Uh, And because you go on a a traditional academic journey, you get a doctorate, you publish, you teach. And then one day, of course, this insidious thing happens and somebody says, why don't you do something in administration? And the next thing you know, you're running a school. So it it certainly wasn't intentional, but it's been one of the greatest privileges of my life.
0: But you're obviously a great organizer as well, because you need a lot of skills in organization when you run a place like that.
1: I was listening to a podcast the other day, and it was about deep work. Uh, and the importance of deep work in an era, in an age of inattention, how how do we do deep work? And uh, one of the things that struck me is, the best academics I know are deep workers. Uh, you know, they solve they solve problems. They they might be doing deep work uh, in in company or on their own. And and interestingly, in this podcast, the the comment was made. Uh, that uh, perhaps the one group of people who don't need to do as much deep work are CEOs, because the job of a CEO, which is equivalent to a dean, uh, is is really to make sure that other people are doing the right deep work. So you're right, and it can be frustrating when you've come from that space where something is your own, uh, and and suddenly you realise that your your job is to make absolutely certain that everybody else is doing their best possible deep work, but it's not yours.
0: No, you almost need to run a course, maybe you do run a course on delegation. I mean delegation is is quite difficult for some people.
1: There's without a doubt an art to it. And and I think it was made more difficult in my career because as an academic when you walk into the front of that classroom, it's very difficult to delegate. It is it is you. You're in this in this business where you know when you're on stage, you're on stage. Uh, And so I almost had to unlearn, which is, I think, the story of our lives. It's why we exist as a school is to promote unlearning because we're always working with people with experience. And and so first of all, this recognition of, of trust and then this recognition of there are people who are going to do things so much better than I can. Uh, and also who have such different strengths. So it, it really has, it has been a journey, and I think it's something we all have to learn. And then, of course, there's that shift, though, between delegation and abdication and making sure that's not part of the package.
0: And you mentioned your doctorate also, that you did a doctorate and you've published and so on. What was your doctorate in?
1: So I was very self-indulgent with a doctorate. Uh, I had a supervisor who said to me, do something that you find interesting. I haven't published a huge amount in it because my, my main research area is actually in corporate reputation and corporate branding, but I did my doctorate in nostalgia. And I, I have to thank you, Richard, because I, you know, I'm not in the in the music world. And so when you wrote to me and you said to me, uh, you need to choose all these pieces of music. It's, it's not a, a logical fit with the business school. And I found myself going down this wonderful journey of just my life and how how in this, this notion of a note about how these are flags for periods of your life, either periods of your own personal growth or introspection or pain or joy. Uh, and then, of course, these periods that mark social events. I even found myself thinking about shifts when we moved into uh, the new democracy and how some of our, our music shifted. So such a personal journey. Uh, and and of course, that is what nostalgia is, is about. And what we see in a world that is changing so fast is uh, more and more presence of nostalgia because as we change faster, so we hanker and hark back to uh, simpler times. The phenomenon was, was uh, c- came up with a, a Swiss physician called Johannes Hoffa in the 1600s with Swiss mercenaries who were um, away from home. And so, so nostalgia originally is associated with people who leave home. Now, I've been living in Johannesburg all my life, but I think we've gone through such change. So we find ourselves looking, looking back. And of course, that's why so much of the music I play now, if you, if you said to me, what is that? That uh, what has driven those choices? It's just about sometimes we need to step back in time.
0: Morning has broken, a traditional folk song arranged by Cat Stevens. I can't even remember his other name now. Uh, I wonder if can you remember he was
1: Abdul uh
0: something yes and and
1: he's a he's a remarkable example of because my field is branding of somebody who has utterly rebranded and I I thought his story was so interesting yeah. because growing up with the song and in fact the song is v- very dear to me I played it at my at my mother's memorial service and it was something we grew up with at school um but uh I specifically, you know, asked for the association with Cat Stevens because it is so interesting when you find somebody who can totally reinvent themselves and get stay yeah. with that, that passion, yeah. music.
0: And and musicians are quite good at that. I think of, of South African musicians like Dollar Brand becoming Abdullah Ibrahim. That's right. That's what I'm thinking of. No, that's not, mm, that's that's not, not Cat that, Stevens. No, and I'll, I'll come up with Cat Stevens later in the program. It's somewhere at the back of my brain. Uh, But musicians are quite good at at doing that because they want a a new image. Musicians, actors, people in the arts, they like giving themselves new names. But we'll come on to branding later. You mentioned school. Did you grow up in Jo'burg?
1: I did. Uh, I went to what was then known as uh, Parktown Convent. Uh, so a lot of a lot of music i'm not a catholic but we had a lot of a lot of wonderful music in fact that chapel um is memories has brings back memories of uh wonderful wonderful celebrations uh so yes i did and and it's been uh, when when i meet people and they say to me so where have you lived i i lived briefly overseas but i've always said this has been a longitudinal exercise in living in one place and it's quite quite incredible if you look at how the city has changed yeah
0: a lot over uh, well i've i've been living here now How long? 40 years I think in Joburg and it's certainly changed dramatically in that time. I used to live right in the center of town. I lived in Dara House next to St. Mary's Cathedral uh, and it's just like crazy place now, right there in the center of town.
1: Well, I think what's so interesting is if you look at uh, city branding and, and you look at what places mean, Uh, Johannesburg is is very much um, always been a city of immigrants a city of new people and of course we've seen those those waves of immigrants coming through following um, well, initially in the Gold Rush and following then the various world wars, and now of course it is the stopping point and the and the beacon for a number of immigrants from within the continent. So, I suppose in some ways things change and areas change, and we see gentrification and we see urban decay and urban renewal. But at the heart of the identity of the city, I actually don't think that much has changed. Yeah. And there's an energy to it.
0: Yeah, but the, the, sort of on the surface, it's changed. No, there's definitely an energy here, and I. I was. I go away a lot around the country, and you come back, and you can actually feel it when mm. you get back here. Mm. There's there's noise going on, and people shouting at the airport at each other. It's it's fantastic. I love coming back to it because this is my, uh, not now it's my home, but uh, I started life in Port Elizabeth, so
1: Very that was different. rather
0: different. <laughs> <laughs> Gosh, so you've you've been your whole life in Joburg, yeah, I- basically.
1: I have. Uh, and it's something I, I mean, I'm enormously privileged in the it being an academic because I've had the opportunity to travel. Uh, increasingly, what we've what we've seen post apartheid is, of course, um, far more scholarly integration and assimilation. And it's 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 very interesting managing uh, the school in the sense that there are on one hand these huge needs for transformation, uh, and shifts and to make sure we have a, a fundamental role to play in making sure that we grow our cohort of strong black academics. And at the same time, though, we need to, we need to internationalize. We need to make sure that we understand that we have a place um, to play in the world uh, and that we also need the world to understand aspects of African management that are useful and come from here. So for me, it's very important that we don't spend our lives importing we also need to export the best of our talent and the best of our thinking.
0: I'm speaking to Nicola Klein, who's the Dean of the Gordon Institute of Business Science, about what she does and her life. And her next choice of music is Besame Mucho. Besame Mucho, as sung by Andrea Bocelli, arranged by David Foster. Fantastic piece by Consuel Velazquez.
1: I have to I have to talk about that piece because I've always loved it, and, and uh, I, the first time I sort of came across it was with Cesaria Voria singing, and um, I didn't know the meaning of the words, and then I went and realized it's about kiss me. Yeah, so kiss I have me to do a lot. This, <laughs> I have to do this as a shout-out for my husband and my children.
0: <laughs> yeah, kiss me a lot.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. This has always so just much. been a piece that resonated, but again, I went and did a little bit of homework, and I thought, this is a good choice. I don't yeah. think my husband has a clue what it means, but Russell, this one's <laughs> for you.
0: Now, you were talking about how uh, business uh, needs to change, how we need to change, how Gibbs needs to change, the internationalization of it. Let's talk for a moment about how business has changed in South Africa and how we have to change in order to deal with Africa. Uh, Has it changed much?
1: It's it's had to. And uh, if we look at the... There are waves of change uh, that, that business on within our country, of course, feels that some of which come from local shifts, uh, the shift post-apartheid, uh, the need to transform. I think we're all well aware of, of those essential changes. But at the same time, it becomes very important that we don't become so preoccupied with our local environment that we're ignoring the two most critical uh, changes that are being placed on business globally. One of those is, of course, technology. So if we look at, and we talk about fourth industrial revolution, uh, my argument would be we're a country that still needs to embrace, in some cases, first industrial revolution. But certainly, as we see issues with electrification, second industrial revolution, as we start thinking about digitization uh, and efficiencies and the trade-offs that we have to make around employment, potentially, uh, that's a third industrial revolution problem. And then, of course, the fourth industrial revolution that brings with it incredible opportunities uh, to revolutionize things like healthcare and city planning and the role of information, but at the same time, enormous threats around privacy. South African businesses have to be competitive. If we don't look outwards, if we don't find out why we're going to be attractive destinations uh, for international investors, and if we don't embrace the technological changes in a way that's smart, we're going to continually see ourselves on the back foot. The second profound area of change is about the role of business. And uh, whilst there's been a lot of movement, and in fact, in in Gibbs since its inception, we've been very conscious of uh, business and its societal role. And I think as South African companies, we are more conscious of it than many of our counterparts in other parts of the world. But if we look post the financial uh, crisis, um, that's really led to a very, very deep pressure being put on companies to say, well, why do you exist? And if you only exist to grow shareholder wallets in an age where we are seeing all the time, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, we don't have a sustainable global solution. So as we navigate change, the fundamental critical skill of anybody, I I don't think it's only in business, but it has to be the ability to adapt. And we talk about building adaptive, adaptive capability. Uh, which is really less about what you know and more about understanding what is it you need to know and what will you have to let go of.
0: And do you run courses in adaptability?
1: It's an area that would form part of courses, but it also guides everything that we do. You know, so w- when we talk um, as a As a school obviously our, our our stock in trade, as it were, is going to be at at, at, at the core about academic qualifications and research output. but we increasingly are, are and, and we do we work a, a lot with business who will come to us and particularly uh, organizations who will say we are facing these particular changes and can you work with our middle or senior um, uh, managers and executives uh, to help us sense make and I, th- I think that uh, learning environments and being able to step out of your day-to-day job into a safe space, uh, and sometimes not so safe space, but to go and learn and to go and try things. I, I, there is a TED Talk that I particularly enjoy, um, and I will try and remember the name of the, the guy, but he talks about how to get better at the things you love. And in fact, he speaks a lot about uh, music in it because he speaks about the difference between being in the learning zone and the performance zone and uh, the importance of being able to have a space where we can come and really think and try things and experiment. And and we can't always do that when we're and in business. And make mistakes. And if make necessary, mistakes. Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and it's so much better to make those mistakes in a learning environment than it is in a high-stakes performance environment. and And so for us, trying to provide that sort of climate, it's less about what is the curriculum and what is the new theory. It's more about people working together and, of course, the importance of collective learning. So what we see at the moment is, a, is a, an emerging rhetoric that says, well, everything you need to know, uh, you can learn off the Internet. You can sit at home. And I've got no doubt that that plays a, a, a very particular role. There is knowledge, and it's ridiculous for anybody in today's day and age to be teaching something in a classroom and using that kind of time when somebody could have learned it on their own. But the collective sense making and what happens with discussion and debate and as you start seeing the thinking move forward and the robustness of the thinking, that is a group exercise and whilst it can be done online, I think it's the difference perhaps between listening to music with beautiful sound equipment in your own lounge versus the immersive experience of actually being in a live performance and breathing the same air as the musicians and ultimately perhaps that's where our crafts are similar.
0: Well, I don't suppose that needed much introduction. Well, it didn't get an introduction, but Take Five by Paul Desmond featuring Dave Brubeck on piano and Paul Desmond on alto sax. The choice of Nicola Klain, the Dean of Gibbs, who's my guest on People of Note tonight. We've talked about black business, we've talked about nostalgia, perhaps not enough about nostalgia because that was your your doctorate on nostalgia. Uh, And a lot of the tunes, as you said, are sort of vaguely nostalgic. Do a lot of business people in South Africa still harbor nostalgia for days gone by? I mean, we are moving on fast at the moment in the business world, but I'm sure a lot of people still hark back to days gone by, or is that generation gone now?
1: I, I think we'll always do that. Uh, I think the danger is when things become dysfunctional. And we actually see that in the literature on nostalgia. Uh, it's it's meant to be functional. It's meant to be healthy, to be able to reflect on the past, um, have a sense of, of peace with the past, but recognize that is a time that is gone. The danger is when we, we want to be back in that time so... Dearly that it prevents us from locating fully in the present and being absolutely open to the change that the present gives, and of course also being future focused so i I think there is a generational thing, I think perhaps as we as we build up and as we have have more paths to look back on, so the memory caches become bigger, uh, but at the same time, what I find fascinating is there's there's recent work on nostalgia that is being experienced, for example, across teenagers who are looking back to that simpler time of when they were 8 or when they were 10 um, and remembering it as when this music happened and increasingly actually as when we had that kind of technology and how complicated it's become because now you have all of these social media platforms that you have to traverse and in some ways life was so much easier. So I I think it's not just a question of business. I think it's a a question of of for all of us, this notion of being able to sense make and, and take the wisdom from the past and as much as we come up with ideas that these are totally new ways of doing things when it comes to business there are still things that pretty much haven't changed there are still needs for, for, for cash flow there is still a thing to be profitable in the longer run so the notion that you can throw everything out and that yeah. was all linked to the past and everything is different today I think is not totally true but at the same time being alert to, to what is no longer relevant I think the other thing is we we come from fragmented pasts uh, part of our our vision at the school is we we speak about a, a prosperous africa but one of the subtenants of that is connectedness and something that I, I think we have a very strong need for as a nation and as part of nation building is making collective sense of the past because of apartheid those those jarring differences between um my past Uh, as a white woman of privilege and the past of my colleagues who had very, very different experiences. It's very difficult to get together in the current and simply work together, I think, without an appreciation and a respect for what that has looked like.
0: And you mentioned also that perhaps our worlds, your world and my world, are similar in many ways because if you think uh, even twenty years ago we had probably five or six orchestras in South Africa. We now have uh, one, two contracted orchestras both of which are pretty shaky I have to say and so we've had to find new ways of working in in the music world as well and it's quite interesting. I think there are lots of messages that we have for other people and that you could give us usefully too. So, let's listen to some Sleepy shawls now. Johnny Pearson okay. with Sleepy Shaws, the choice of Nicola Klain, my guest on People of Note. Uh, you've mentioned, Nicola, marketing and branding, which is a sort of very important part of any business's work these days, or any person. Absolutely. Uh, everybody has to market themselves in one way or another, and I think Perhaps we don't teach enough to young people about marketing and entrepreneurial skills. We we talk about it a lot, but is part of your job to try and get the message into people earlier when they're still at school?
1: Branding is interesting because if you have, uh, if you it, it strong brands are built off strong identities, and so uh, and uh, never forget a, a CEO. Uh, who's since stepped down, but he said to me once, you know, you can put lipstick on a pig, but it's still a pig. So with no disrespect to pigs, uh, if you're going to build a strong brand, you have to have something of substance. And... I think branding is complicated because we have so many different levels of branding. So if, 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 if you look in, in our world, there are individual brands and then there will be, you, you mentioned just now, the orchestra brand, uh, those personal brands, and then of course we're dealing with musical brands and we're dealing with, with, with this interplay of multiple different brands. I think the challenge around, uh, around branding is to often uh, work particularly with individuals and say, you know, you can know what your strengths are and what you bring to the world. But if the world doesn't have a clue of what that is, uh, you're not going to be able to add the value and you're not going to be able to make your mark. You're not going to be noteworthy, as it were. So the the, the, the the task of branding fundamentally is to make sure that you have something that others will value. If you don't have that, you can forget about all the marketing in the world is not going to create a strong brand. But at the same time, it's also to figure out who is that brand for. And I would argue in, in our world, who does it serve? Uh, we, we really are a service brand, and we need to be of service and in service.
0: How many business schools are there in South Africa of your sort of level, if you like?
1: I'm always very careful around those kinds of <laughs> questions because what you start getting is uh, into into uh, accusations of elitism, etc. Yeah. So I think in the in the country, uh, I, and I, I sit on the uh, the board of the South African Business Schools Association, and I think we're on twenty two or twenty three, but I could Gosh, be. That's,
0: that's could many be more wrong. than I would have thought. Yes. Yeah.
1: Uh, And at the same time, what we're increasingly seeing and where, of course, this is about these new business forms is people can register with any business school anywhere in the world. So I can go if they have an online program, I can choose where previously I needed to be there in person for my MBA or make the decision to invest a huge amount of money, perhaps, and go and travel and do it somewhere else. Uh, I can now sit from my from my desk and do an MBA with the Kelley School of Business or any of another very high quality online providers. Do you offer
0: distance learning at at Gibbs?
1: So we use a lot of what we call blended learning, and blended learning means that part of a program. Is done online and interestingly the program where we really piloted this at Gibbs was in our doctoral program which is surprising because often people think that online learning is for slightly lower level in inverted commas learning uh, where for us once we we find once we have a strong community of learners who know each other and preferably have met face-to-face then the online learning experience becomes uh, much richer There's an issue, though, with online learning uh, in our context, and that's around bandwidth, and it's not obviously just in South Africa, but the cost of data and the assumption that everybody is going to be able to be online at the same time, so we call that synchronous learning, uh, and be able to participate fully. Uh, It takes into account certain key uh, assumptions around access to bandwidth and around the cost of data. And unfortunately, we are not there yet. So a lot of our learning will tend to be more asynchronous where people are coming in at different times. When you
0: say we, do you mean here in South Africa?
1: I mean us as a school.
0: As a school, yeah. Okay. As a school,
1: it's I- in the university sector. We've seen an enormous uh, thrust towards um, being able to learn more about online learning because uh, the question here is: it's not you can't just take what works in a classroom, and we t- uh, some people will talk about paper under glass. You can't just put paper under glass and assume that the learning experience will be rich. Uh, and it, it actually came from a very difficult place for the University of Pretoria because they had their fees must fall and, and the whole fees must fall, the fallist movement in 2016 with the disruption to campuses meant that many of our universities in the country had to by necessity go online and sometimes I suppose it's those kinds of crises that build the capability. We weren't as affected by it as Gibbs uh, but it's it's a delicate balance between what you bring people together to do and what you can take online.
0: So do you think that whole Fees Must Fall movement has actually led to a change in direction slightly, uh, not not to do with fees, but to do with how we teach, because that would be quite interesting.
1: It's it's undoubtedly in the case of the University of Pretoria, and I can't speak because I, I was working intimately with, with them at, at that point, still am, um, it, it without a doubt built a capability under trying circumstances that oh, previously there wasn't yeah. a need necessarily to do. Of course that you know people could access, we had the technology in place, but the tradition was that everything was learned in a lecture theater.
0: That's really interesting. Rhapsody in Blue is your next choice. This is the Five Browns version. That was the Five Browns version of George Gershwin's Rhapsody in Blue, the choice of Nicola Klein, who's my guest in People of Note, and it's just gone seven o'clock here on Classic 1027. You're listening to People of Note, broadcast every Sunday from six to eight. And my guest tonight, as I mentioned, is Nicola Klain, who's the Dean of the Gordon Institute of Business Science. And I'm very happy to have her in the studio. We're going to take a short break and we'll be back just after this. Well, there's something rather different.
1: It it was, and, and that piece fascinated me I, it, it, I think it was released in 1978 I, I remember it really because I used to do uh, contemporary dancing and we did a, a number of pieces to his work but it, it always interested me because I'd grown up with classical music and, and some of the Dave Brubecks and the things that we've been playing but uh, this was, was for me this realisation that the music has broken out of what it's meant to sound like um, but I loved it
0: that was Oxygene 4 by Jean-Michel Jarre, uh, the choice of my guest, Nicola Klein. Did You, you mentioned there uh, classical music. Did you play yourself or sing, or what did you do?
1: I did play, but I don't think I was very good. I, I, I <laughs> think I managed to get up to grade five or something. Piano. Um, piano. Yeah. Lots, of, lots of practicing. Yeah. And then the most liberating finding that, that has helped me actually resolve this investment of millions of hours in trying to play the piano is that apparently it's two different sides of the brain for musical production versus musical appreciation. Now, maybe you know which it is. I can tell you my appreciation is far better developed than my production.
0: Well, no, but the, the production, you see, trains other parts of the brain also. Discipline, fine motor coordination, eye, hand coordination, all of that stuff. It, it does good for maths as well, uh, I hope.
1: I, there's, no, there's no doubt about it. Um, my, my aunt was a um, a harpist, um, and uh, she was superb at maths and spoke seven languages. There you go, you see. You know, so I, th- I think these people are very gifted. What it means is I should just be a dean and enjoy listening to music.
0: <laughs> Which obviously you do.
1: I do. I do. I yeah. love music. And it's been wonderful. Having, I have four children, and particularly the younger two, the introduction, the the role that my children have played in introducing me to new artists and new music, I'm, I'm eternally grateful to them. Because otherwise, I'd still be listening to all the old stuff and sort of, perhaps not, we, we need to increase our repertoires all the yeah, time.
0: All the time. And there's a lot to increase it with, I have to say, because music has changed a lot also with with the digital Uh, arrival of digital means of producing music and people can make their own music now with garage band and all Mm -hmm. these things at Mm -hmm. home. You can do all sorts of things yourself that you couldn't do before. But one thing that hasn't changed is the sort of music you're going to hear now. Uh, This is a Cuella featuring the Busgate Soweto String Ensemble and this has remained the same for many, many years. Well, I said it hadn't changed. That was the Buscade Soweto String Ensemble playing the Quella. Originally, it was played on the Penny Whistle, of course, but Mm. now it's been transcribed for strings.
1: So I picked this piece of music because um, I first came across it uh, with Soweto String Quartet in 94. And so for me, it's very evocative of that changing time and that exposure to music that I just hadn't heard. Uh, and and it always it always stands out if you say to me elections ninety four or I hear. This piece of music, it really is symbolic of that enormous switch that we've made as a country, and the opportunity to just learn so much about different kinds of music. That I, I think you had to; they were certainly there, um, but you had to work harder to to learn about it. So I, I adore that that um, uh, Soweto String Quartet for me was also this exercise in 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 branding in so many things. You know, previously Soweto was not a place that any anybody, if you were white, associated with with The production of you know this wonderful brand and amazing music so it has a lot of meaning.
0: So there was a a brand created and they've they've gone on creating themselves the the Zebra Crossing was another of their brands that they created and we talked earlier about brands and we we have a program here with uh, Jeremy Sampson Mm. on classic uh, business which is uh, all about brands and it's I think it's a really fascinating Thing. And I think some people are not really aware enough of branding and, and what you can do with brands.
1: So Jeremy's a an, an old friend and in fact the reason that I'm here tonight because Jeremy said, I think that you should, <laughs> in, I must introduce you to Richard Cox. So thank you Jeremy for that. Uh, I, the the question of branding is, is, is interesting for me because they, they came out as being very strongly associated with commercial entities. Uh, and it's only been in the last 20 or 30 years that, for example, professions um, have started to embrace branding.
0: Or have been allowed to. Or have been allowed, allowed to, absolutely.
1: Yeah. Uh, you know, I remember doing doing work for a, a, a law firm that I do quite a bit of work for and going in and speaking about branding. And um, the senior partner, in fact, it wasn't the senior partner. He was very progressive. But th- there was a partner who said, this is tawdry. We really don't need to do this branding thing. If we're good enough, people will find out. And the problem is we are in a world where there is so much choice that if you are not going to be clear about who you're for and what you're about, and more importantly I think today in an era where we're seeing failing corporate reputations, what you are not about and what you don't stand for. uh, You you, you owe to yourself, and particularly also for organizations, there are very strong linkages between uh, the quality of um, employee engagement with the company and how employees feel People want to be associated with good brands. They want to be proud of the companies that they work for.
0: And you see it in, in politics, sort of writ large is all about brands and how you appear to the public. I mean, and, and, you know, a lot of people think those brands are pretty toxic. And yet other people follow them as if they're like the messiah. It's really bizarre.
1: We're in a we're in a very dangerous era in political branding. So, with the rise of populism, with the rise of the big man um, syndrome, we are seeing, and of course, you know, uh, people like Trump and people like Johnson uh, are are, are it's, it's a it's a response. Um, brands succeed because society buys into them at some level. So, one can point finger at the brand and one can say that it's the it's the Trump, it's the Johnsons, etc. But actually, it's societies that vote those brands yeah, into no, power.
0: Absolutely. Well, here's a brand. This is Sergei Rachmaninoff. Uh, Not only a brand, but he had big hands, not only a big brand. This is Anton Nell playing the first movement of the Piano Concerto No. 2. Anton Nell playing with the Johannesburg Philharmonic Orchestra under Grant Llewellyn. That was the first movement of the Piano Concerto No. 2 by Sergei Rachmaninoff, the choice of Nicola Klein. And we were talking about branding and one of the interesting things, we were talking about, you know, toxic people being able to brand themselves in some way. I I think of um, also uh, Pablo Escobar. I think he was the big Mm, drug dealer who's branded himself as a hero. Um, And there are lots of people who are actually skellums who are branding themselves as heroes now. And in the music world, it's also happened, we were talking off air about um, people like Vanessa May, uh, all these big pop artists or po- crossover artists, Catherine Jenkins, Nigel Kennedy, who've branded themselves in a particular way or have been packaged by record companies to sell product.
1: Where it has very little actually to do with the music. Yeah. So Vanessa May was was my uh, sort of first experience of somebody really young and funky and stepping out in, in any in, in in any product, we talk about the category and we'll have category norms. So c- category norms might be that if you go to uh, a, a symphony, that is what uh whoever it is the, the the conductor, the first violinist, et etc, et etc what is going to be worn, how they will behave, et etc and she just came out looking so different yeah. and it can be a very dangerous thing to do, but on the other hand, what it does lead to is new ways of doing things, and of course you know you would you would know all of that from the the genre's perspective uh but i I always thought she was absolutely fascinating at having done that and what I loved was when when she came out with the the rendition of, of Toccata and Fugue in D minor I had only ever heard it in churches played on the organ you know and there she was this very sassy violinist I found it the most energizing music. So this question, I suppose, of what are the occasions that we associate using certain products? And it goes again to music. When do we choose to listen to music? What do we choose to listen to? And if we can turn that upside down and turn it on its head, it means that we can change patterns of consumption.
0: Yeah. And here, actually, the version that we've got here is a rebranding also of the original, which was done for organ, as you said. Mm -hmm. But um, Leopold Stokowski was was fantastic with branding himself uh, and he did it very consciously and he did a version of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor for orchestra which absolutely sort of revolutionized the piece and uh, he recorded it on film and it revolutionized his position in society and in the music world too. That was an amazing version of the Toccata and Fugue in D minor J.S. Bach, transcribed by Leopold Stokowski with the Cincinnati Pops Orchestra under Erich Kunzel. Uh, The choice of Nicola Klein, my guest on People of Note. And it's interesting how composers have done that over the years. Bach himself did it with the music of Vivaldi. He took Vivaldi's music for strings and transcribed it for the organ and so on. People have borrowed Mm. tunes, good tunes, live on you know
1: they 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 do, but it's also how we listen to them so one of the one of the things in the nostalgic journey around Vanessa May was it was around about the time that I picked up on her that we we started with it I think it was after. Little after the era of the Walkman, but where you had music on the go that wasn't linked to a radio.
0: You better explain to people what a Walkman is. Please.
1: Oh dear! Oh dear! <laughs> so this this notion of of personalizing, you know, yeah. I, it, I grew up in in a household where we had. We had music and we played a lot of music in, in our home and always at, at dinner time, et cetera. There were no, you only ever had the TV on when you were watching TV, but music was playing. Um, and if you wanted to listen to music on your own, my, my mother had a set of headphones and she was an insomniac and she would go and plug in. She would listen to Bach and every now and then she'd forget to plug in the headphones. So we'd wake up at 2 PM with the house just sort of rocking with, with, if that's the right word, with Bach, but really intense. And we'd go and tap her on the shoulder and she'd be sitting there with her headphones and we'd go, Mom, you've forgotten to plug them in. But that was the only way that she could listen to something really on her own. And then, of course, came this era of, of personal music and using music to accompany activities that previously you wouldn't have. So for me, I was eternally grateful to Vanessa May because I'm a very bad exerciser. And somehow, when I was going for a run—not that I'm very good at running—being able to listen to an SMA just made it so much easier. So I am grateful to her because she kept me fitter then, which is probably the wrong thing to say about her, but she kept me fitter no, then I would have been had it not. You know, been horses for, for
0: courses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now, talking of horses for courses, uh, what tell me what is special about Gibbs that distinguishes it from other business schools around South Africa or around the world, even?
1: So there are, are multiple roles that business schools can play. For us, uh, we, we believe that there doesn't need to be the distinction between quality and uh, relevance in terms of being applied. We talk about ourselves as a school that is close to business. Uh, and the idea is that uh, globally, there's actually quite a backlash against business schools. Because business schools are not seen as being active in helping businesses solve the problems that they need to solve. This question of I'll go to university and I'll pick up theory that will be useful for me one day is not helpful when business is in the kind of flux that it's in. So for Gibbs, our our significant opportunity, of course, in working with a number of customized clients means that we really can do things together. And our best client relationships are where we understand what an organisation is is going through and the changes that they need to make, uh, and that we can come together to co-create, as it were, learning solutions that are really going to be right for them.
0: So, is this something you do on an ongoing basis? You you attract businesses who come to you with particular set of circumstances, and. You help to solve their problems in an academic way as it were
1: it's not even necessarily in an academic way it depends on what the client needs I I, I'm of the view that there's nothing so practical as a good theory the the question is when do you use the theory and when don't you use the theory and what problems are you solving for and where traditionally business schools have been very product centric uh, and their products have been degrees diplomas uh, and and pieces of research Uh, If you look now, I would argue that our our product in inverted commas is learning processes, and those might be. There's a major move in business schools to anything from what we call micro learning. I need uh, that that four-piece video clip that I'm going to watch that's going to give me the answer to what is economic value added, for argument's sakes, versus quite intensive, long processes, of which the doctorate is probably the longest process. So this question of being close to what practice needs as opposed to practice coming to you and sort of sitting in the ivory tower is very important for us. The other thing is what, whilst global best practice is always important, Whether you can actually apply something locally becomes critical. So it's all very well having a phenomenal theory on performance management, but if it was developed in a highly individualistic society, if it doesn't take any cognizance of local labor regulations, if it doesn't align with an organization's culture, it's not going to be fit for purpose. So for us it's about that customization, and it's about a learning experience that is immersive and memorable and ultimately changes performance.
0: So you have a very practical side to your academic side as well. Yeah. Exactly. Which sounds perfect. Well, here comes a practical performance. This is by Thomas Dratva, the pianist, and it's the second movement and Dante with variations of Leopold Kotzluch's Piano Concerto Number no. 5. That was part of the Piano Concerto Number no. 5 by Leopold Kotzluch. Thomas Dratva was the pianist with the Slovak Sinfonieta under Oliver von Dohnanyi. And we're sort of coming to the end of the program now. And Nicola Klein is my guest. She's the dean of the Gordon Institute of Business Science. And I just want to ask you where d- your sort of short-term strategy and your long-term strategy for Gibbs is. Uh, presumably, there is a long-term strategy of where you'd like to be in 10, 20 years.
1: This is the most remarkable continent in the world to be on. Uh, In 2050, one in two children in the world will be African children. And with that comes a a continent that many globally associate, uh, have very negative associations. It's seen as a a place of unrest. It's seen as a place of corruption. It's seen as perhaps it's romanticized in some ways um, around tourism, the dark continent. Uh, Practically, though, if we do not build better countries that are going to serve their citizens better and if we don't have businesses that are going to satisfy people's needs and if we're not able to accelerate that rapidly to meet the needs of this very underserved continent, we will have failed. And so when we think about the role of universities in promoting learning and in changing lives for all, They're very important, and if we think about business schools in that context, we're going to have very underserved, we already have underserved management populations. So for us as a school, what becomes critical is a continuation of the ethos that we've developed over the 20 years, and next year we'll be celebrating our 20th year um, anniversary. This, This ethos of being able to do good business in context what that means is that we have to continually be innovating we have to be looking out for the, the shifting ways in which people want to learn what they want to learn who they want to learn with we have to be alert very alert to a younger generation that is constantly challenging I think sometimes irrelevant ways of teaching uh, and we have to let go of all of that uh, it becomes important that at the end of the day we can enable ethical performance. And so in terms of in terms of strategy, if that's the intent, the strategy is going to always be to stay close to those individuals who are coming to our campus and to stay close to them over lives. It's no use anymore saying, well, you've got a degree, cheers, off you go, bye-bye, maybe we'll see your children here one day. It's about lifelong learning. And we need to match this voracious appetite that the world is showing. Uh, for continual adaptation and for learning all the time. And whether that's going to be through um, listening to an online broadcast, whether that's going to be coming to the school for an hour, or whether that's going to be studying for a professional doctorate when somebody reaches their 50s, that's what we need to be there to do.
0: So huge opportunities, but huge challenges also. Nicola Klein, the Dean of the Gordon Institute of Business Science. And your last choice of music is by Paganini. It's an arrangement by David Garrett with the Ricciotti Ensemble of the Caprice Number 24. The Caprice Number 24 in an arrangement by David Garrett and featuring him on violin. Music, of course, by Paganini. That featured the Ricciotti Ensemble. The final choice of Nicola Klein, the Dean of Gibbs, who's been my guest in People of Note. Thank you for being on the program.
1: Richard, thank you for having me. It's been a wonderful energizing experience, and I'm going to so just enjoy having selected this music, and I will be listening to it again and again. So thank you. Good.
0: It's a pleasure. And thanks to Pete for helping us put it together. And thank you, of course, to you at home for listening. And until next time, from all of us here at Classic 1027, we wish you a very good night.